on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined on this day by State Representative Mindy Dom, representative from the 3rd Hampshire District. Representative, thank you so much for being with us. Your, your district includes Amherst, and Amherst has a big vote, early voting ongoing now. But the election day itself is next Tuesday, and the question is, will Amherst approve the debt exclusion in order to be able to build a new school, a desperately needed new school? And I'm wondering if you have a public position, I assume you do, on this, uh, on this ballot question, and if you'd care to share with us your position. Thank you, Bill, and good morning to you and to Buzz. And I definitely have a very public um, position, and it's, I support the new elementary school project. Um, I support it as an Amherst resident and homeowner. I support it as a parent of two adults who graduated from one of the elementary schools that will be replaced by the new school. So I'm very aware of the problems it had like a decade ago. Um, and I also support it as the state representative. And I, when I originally ran for office in 2018, it was um, part of what I promised I would do was be to try to get Amherst back on the list for MSBA support for the new elementary school. And along with uh, my fearless partner, Senator Joe Comerford, and the town of Amherst and the school committee, we've been successful in keeping Amherst on the governmental track. The town itself and the school committee and the school design um, committee have kept it on track in terms of planning, but I'm really proud that we have helped to continue to support MSBA support for this really incredible project. Massachusetts um, School I, Building Authority, yes, MSBA. Um, and so this project costs about, it's, it's expensive. It's over $90 million, but over $40 million of it is going to come from the MSBA, which is unbelievably wonderful and generous. And the remainder of the money is still less than it would cost to repair the existing buildings. So we kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. We need, to, we need to endorse it. We need to endorse it big, and I'm confident um, the vote on Tuesday is going to be overwhelmingly in support. I must say, I don't really understand the opposition. And there was a letter to the editor of the Gazette today or yesterday trying to explain the opposition, but I still don't understand it. If, if this passes, Amherst ends up with a state-of-the-art 21st century school that will cost a lot less to operate than the present schools, and Amherst will spend some $50 million. If Amherst does not pass this debt exclusion, it will then spend... $80 million plus or $85 million to repair schools that can't really be repaired very well, um, that will not be appropriate for education in the 21st century. And Amherst will, in fact, be in dire straits with regard to its other building projects. You spend money now to save money and to have money to do other projects. I don't get it other than if it's a tax, I'm opposed to it. Can you explain any of that to us? No, I think you did a great job of explaining why there isn't really a basis for opposition. Um, people may be opposed. I think so. I've heard from some people they're opposed because they want to keep small schools. This would consolidate to elementary schools. But the design of the new school keeps the small feeling within the school for different grade levels. You know, they would be pulling sort of sixth grade out and putting the sixth graders in the middle school, and they'd be like K through five. And that's a reasonable-sized school. 
Um, I don't understand. You know, I think that right now the opposition is significantly reduced. But I also want to make sure that the support is as enthusiastic as it can be. Like, I want it to be overwhelmingly in favor. May 2nd is an odd time to have an election. Um, and But we all need to be getting out there to say we want this new school for our community, for our kids, and for the climate. This is going to be a net zero school. So um, it becomes its own laboratory for students. You know, I was at um, the local um, Arts Cultural Council meeting a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about what a community asset this new school would be because it would provide more space for arts and cultural programming. A lot of folks don't realize that in Amherst, a lot of our quote-unquote community spaces are really either government spaces or university and college spaces, not really community spaces. This would be an, an additional community space. And that's really necessary um, in Amherst, in addition to it being an excellent um, building. It's, I got to tell you, if people haven't seen the video of what the new school might feel and look like, I really recommend that they go to the town website, which, if I can say, is www.amherst-school-project.com, and just watch the video walkthrough in the, the design schematic. It just makes you incredibly excited that this could be something that our kids could be enjoying and learning in, and our educators could be teaching in, and our custodians could be maintaining um, it's just, it's a phenomenal um, building. It's such a well done, um, I really kudos to all the community members who've participated so far and let's give them a rounding, uh, round of applause and support by really putting this over the finish line on Tuesday. The other aspect of this that I think is worth noting is that it will cost a lot less money, like $250,000 less a year to operate because it's a green building. Uh, and, right. and, well, we have the additional benefit in this building of there being less pollution uh, and it being environmentally sensitive. I, I honestly, I do not understand the opposition, except well, if it's a tax, I'm against it. I think, uh, Bill and Representative Mindy Dom, uh, what I've heard is some people, it, it's not rational. I think it's absolutely backwards to think that way, but there's so many other projects that need to be done. People in Amherst are concerned about a fire station, about an expensive library, about the roads that really need attention. So I think some people just feel overwhelmed by the demand and may just vote against it. You know, my house needs a new heating system and it needs new paint and blah, 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 blah. Right. So I'm not going to do the paint. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I think there is, um, I've heard um, economic hardship argument being made for it, which I think the town is trying to address by using some of its stabilization funds. You know, the renters are concerned because they don't know how landlords will translate the increase in the, um, the debt exclusion to their rent. But I think those are things we can really address as they, if they happen. Um, but I think that this is what happens. I, I bet, I'll be very frank. I believe this is what happens when you kick the can down the road. The problem does not go away. It just gets more expensive. And so, yes, the, all those projects are needed in Amherst, and we're going to be the generation that's going to have to build infrastructure. So we have to kind of address the fact that that's what's happening. And, you know, the world is changing, and our fire department needs a new station. We need a new library. We need a new DPW building. We're going to have to look at the plan for how to create those 
and fund those in a very fair way that doesn't overburden any resident, but also that meets resident needs. I just want to point out that it's not only less pollution that will be emitted outside the building, the new building will also be healthier inside the building. So it's less pollution inside and outside. It's known as a healthy green structure, which will also, you know, undoubtedly will increase property values in town and allow us to raise revenue in ways maybe that we cannot currently. So, uh, you know, I think it's a great project. I'm really enthusiastic. I've already voted. I voted um, by mail, and I don't usually do that. I wait till election day, but I was too excited, and I wanted <laughs> to use my I wanted to use my vote on a Earth Day. So I voted on Earth Day by mail. <laughs> I think it's also worth noting that there is this counterintuitive aspect of this project, which is if you spend money on this, there will be more money for the other projects, not less. Like. $45 million more because the cost of repairing the schools is actually higher than the cost of building a new school. And to repair the schools, the state is not going to give Amherst 40 or $45 million, which it will do for the new school. That's, so That's really true. That's really true, Phil, because as you described earlier, if we do nothing, each school, it's estimated, will cost $40 million to repair, not to build new, to repair. And so that's an additional money that we will have to pay for that we will not get help for. Representative Dom, your district includes not only the town of Amherst, but the University of Massachusetts, and there are demonstrations that are happening at UMass and have been happening for some time. I'm wondering if you would like to bring that to the attention of our listeners who don't know about that fight, what's going on, and, well, tell us your position. Well, I'll be attending today's um, rally at the university at Memorial Hall at 12 noon to sort support the people who work in the university in the field of advancement to not have to change their jobs or leave their jobs in the university's reorganization plan. So some people know that the university has a reorganization plan to move all people who work at regardless of how little they work in advancement to their foundation, taking them out of the public university. And um, I oppose this. Um, and I have, with, again, Senator Comerford, we've expressed our great disappointment in the university to pursue this plan. And I'll be standing with um, those employees to resist the move and to encourage the university to come up with a reorganization plan that doesn't require people uh, disruption in people's careers and lives and jobs. We believe that is possible, um, and I'm hoping that the university will reopen the um, sort of the internal conversation that they may be having around how to restructure without disruption. I think that's possible, and I'm hoping that they um, come to a decision. As I understand it, there are about 100 employees at the university's what's called advancement, which is fundraising. That's what we're talking about. Right. And right. what the university has in mind is firing all those individuals from their jobs, about 100 people, in, in advancement, in the fundraising department of the university, and then rehiring them without any union protection, without any protection, to be employees at will as part of the private foundation that raises money for UMass and it seems to me that there is no justification for this uh, other than, well, it makes it easier to get rid of people, perhaps. 
I don't know. I haven't heard. Um, I think we're waiting to hear what this justification may be since uh, we have received assurances that their um, their retirements are secure. So I'm not I'm not really, uh, you know, in the public side. Um, we still haven't heard more information. I just want to point out that they're also um, apparent, I think, still on the table is the university offering people other jobs in the university sector so that they have like a choice. You can either go into the foundation or you can stay in the university in a different job. But, you know, that's not I don't think that's um, that's a false choice because people have been working in their jobs for decades. They, this is their career. Um, it's not so easy just to change your career because there's a change of objective on the part of the university. Um, so I think uh, we have we need more information to understand why they're pursuing this plan, um, because at this point, I'm not satisfied with the responses. And where is the demonstration again, please? It's at Memorial Hall on the UMass Amherst campus at 12 noon. Um, to- today. Today, Friday. Um, and it's really to support uh, the people who are in advancement on the public campus side and to urge the university to uh, make sure that these folks can retain not just their jobs, their careers. Um, we're talking about people who've worked in these jobs for a long time. Two-thirds of them are women. Um, and, you know, women who have to change jobs after and late in their careers don't often make up that time. Um, just traditionally across in all careers. So we need to do better. The universe, the public university needs to do better in this. And the, you mentioned retirement. There is a question I have about retirement, which is that if you are in the state system, then all your time counts towards the state retirement. And there's a formula that determines how much of your pre- highest three years salary you will receive in retirement. But if there's a transfer and your person goes to work for a private corporation, there's generally an offset, and you don't get to collect what you would in Social Security and your state retirement, and people are really shortchanged when that happens. So I'm not convinced. Um, you say that the retirement of the university says the retirement is secure, but I have not heard why that is true. Well, it, it may. what you're saying, Bill, though, is true. I don't want to um, mislead folks. If people were to move to the foundation, they would have to move off of the state retirement system. Um, and so that is part of the concern is that these people have, you know, they want to continue. They want to continue being public employees um, and with the public part of the system. So we haven't we're still working on this. And I think it's a good opportunity to show support for our neighbors. There's like 100 people um, who may be subjected to this um, decision. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. When we come back, we're going to talk about some difference makers who she wants to bring to your attention and some budget matters, what the legislature is doing that will affect us now immediately in Western Massachusetts. We'll be right back. The mama pajama rolled out of bed and she ran to the police station. When the papa found out, he began to shout and he started the investigation. It's against the law. It was against the law, or what the mama saw. It was against the law. The mama looked down and spit on the ground. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Here comes- 
You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. At Mountain View Farm in East Hampton, we have been growing beautiful, certified organic produce exclusively for our farm share members since we started. And we have been voted best local CSA in the Valley for the last 15 years running. Included in your weekly pickup, you can also enjoy our field of you-pick flowers and herbs all season long. And you can shop in our farm store, which features many wonderful local products. We offer shares for all size households. Sign up at mountainviewfarmcsa.com. It's lawn care season, so remember, what you put on your lawn and garden can wash with the next rainstorm into our rivers and lakes. Here's two tips for better lawn care. One, test your soil. Find out what your lawn needs before spending money on product. UMass Extension offers testing. Two, leave grass clippings where they fall. When mowing, this will put nutrients back into your lawn naturally. Healthy lawns, healthy waters. Brought to you by the Connecticut River Stormwater Committee. Learn more. Click Lawn and Yard Care at thinkblueconnecticutriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom, representative from the 3rd Hampshire District. Representative Dom, I know it's budget season, and I know we say the word budget, and everyone's eyes glaze over its dollar signs, its numbers. It's so intensely boring, but actually it's the most important thing the state legislature does in terms of affecting our lives. So perhaps you could highlight for us what you think the most important part of these these budget discussions are and are ongoing at this time and how they will affect us here in Western Massachusetts. Thank you, Bill. Well, the House um, ended its budget uh, discussions and decisions on Wednesday. So in terms of the process, it now goes to the Senate, the Massachusetts State Senate, and they will try to see if they can make it better. And they will also add their own preferences for different kinds of things. They may change dollar amounts for certain issues, um, and they'll come up with theirs probably by the end of May. Um, we'll have to come to agreement on a single budget. That'll happen throughout June and maybe into July. And then we present a budget that the House and the Senate agree on to the governor, Maura Healy, and she will have an opportunity to either veto certain pieces of it um, or sign it as a whole. And we'll hopefully have a budget. We're supposed to, I think, have it by July 1st. That has not happened since I've been there. It usually takes a couple of weeks into July, if not the whole month. Um, but it will cover July 1 through next June 30th. Some aspects and, of this budget that you're concerned about that will be a fight, perhaps? No, I hope not. I love this budget. I think this budget... You um, love a budget? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I do. I love this budget. And I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. Yeah, please. I mean, it's not perfect. 
we've left a lot of room for the um, Senate to make it better. Absolutely. But one of the things that has in it that I just was my number one priority was making universal school meals free for the year next year. So as you may know, during COVID, we provided school meals and it was for everybody. Um, you didn't have to prove anything. You didn't have to show anything. We just said, you know what? Every student deserves um, a, you know, a meal when they get to school. It makes them better learners. And it also removes any stigma from who needs it, who doesn't need it. Um, and we continued that through last this fiscal year, um, seeing the great benefit to it, that kids weren't being stigmatized, that everybody was getting fed. It's important for everybody to get fed and treating meals like we treat, you know, chalk, books, pens, paper. And so there was a big effort to extend that next year. And it's expensive. It's about 100, I think in the budget, it's about $160 million for next year. Um, but this is a priority because what it does say is it says every student deserves to have their nutritional needs met so that they can be better students. It removes stigma because we're not picking and choosing who should get, who should not. We're not relying on people pulling together the paperwork to document quote unquote need. We're saying every student deserves it. And so it's included in the budget and it's huge. It's, um, it's a great step forward in not only food security, in Massachusetts, but in just treating people with dignity um, and helping students learn. I'm really excited that it was included. Included in both the bu- governor's budget and the House budget, right? Well, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't in the governor's the budget? Governor, it was, the governor put it sort of in a supplemental, but it was. this was something that I have to say, this is the House's win. The House has taken the lead on this, and I don't usually sort of cheerlead that strongly, but I do want to say this is a credit to the to very to the House as a body in recognizing that this is important, but specifically to the Speaker Ron Mariano, to House Ways and Means Chair Anna Michaelowitz, and I want to shout out my colleague Rep. Andy Vargas from Haverhill, who's really been an incredible advocate to make this happen. Will there be full funding for? Well, full funding—that's a bad word, bad phrase. But will there be adequate funding, appropriate funding? for K through 12 and for higher ed this year? And does that include the money from the most recent constitutional amendment, the fair share amendment? That's such a good question. I don't know what adequate means in the terms that I think adequate in this situation is a fluid uh, concept. So like on the K through 12, um, some of the pieces that have been funded in full that I think we really need to recognize in the house budget is we have funded in full um, charter school reimbursement, which is huge. We've also funded... Now let's stop there for a second. Charter school reimbursement, dis- the district sends someone out of the district and without getting into the details, the money, the cost per student follows the student and goes somewhere else. That's, right. what, we're ta- also, that's what we're talking about. Right, right. And sometimes districts have to pay for that, right? And in this case, the state is going to cover full reimbursement so that the burden of those extra costs won't be on local districts that might be losing students to charter schools. So that's, that's significant. You know, schools, every penny counts in schools. I mean, I see that in the Amherst discussions that are going on right now. And so having the state cover that is maybe also the first step in having the state realize that uh, charter schools aren't public schools and maybe they shouldn't, public schools shouldn't be paying for charter school attendance. But the other thing that we're paying full in full right now is transportation for regional schools. And in Western Mass, that's huge. I don't know off the top of my head, I should know this, um, the total numbers in terms of dollars, 
but those are going to be dollars that now won't be drained from regional school budgets to cover transportation. Um, we still need to do a better job, quite frankly, with covering um, special education costs, but I think that'll happen. You know, it's interesting because I think I will post later on, if people are interested on my Facebook page, the ways that we're spending the fair share amendment on schools for next year's budget, which are quite significant. We're covering a lot of great um, efforts. I don't have them on the top of my head, though. I'm sorry, Bill. Well, let me um, ask you. Let me ask you this, Representative Dom, because we just have a minute left. Um, I know because you were telling us before we went on the air about some difference makers in your district oh, that you it. wanted to mention. Thank so please take. Thank it. you so much. Thank you, Claudia Pasmani and Gabrielle Gould. Um, they are respectively the head of the Amherst Area Chamber of Commerce and the Amherst BID. Are phenomenal the business business leaders. improvement district. The business improvement district. They are phenomenal leaders, community leaders, and cheerleaders, and economic difference makers in the Amherst area. And they are being recognized by Business West as one of a group of people around that they're calling difference makers. And a lot of people in Amherst know that they are that these two women, Claudia and Gabrielle. Together, during the top, the heat of COVID, helped so many small businesses not only stay in business but pay their workers, make sure people got, you know, could feed their families. They also initiated lots of um, creative ways to connect, like the restaurant community that was hit so hard by the beginning of the pandemic, with folks in our community who needed food and needed meals. They created this program where they paid for meals. Um, to be created by restaurants and then delivered them to families in need. They're incredible, creative, um, wonderful people to work with, really into collaboration. The Drake Music Venue was under construction during the heat of COVID and opened up during so that there could be this new music venue in Amherst. And I could not be more thrilled that they're receiving this award this week. That They received it last night as difference makers in Western Massachusetts because they continue to make a difference, not only for the business community, right, but for all the families in our area that are connected to these businesses. I think that's what we have to remember. We live in a small community. Our businesses are owned by families, neighbors, friends, um, and supporting that community supports our families and friends and neighbors. The names and of the honorees again, Representative? Claudia Pasmani and Gabrielle Gould. Claudia is head of the Amherst Area Chamber of Commerce. Gabrielle is the Amherst Business Improvement District, and they are real heroes in our community. We leave it there. Representative Minnie Dom, thank you so much for being with us every month. We really appreciate it. Coming up on the other side of this break, Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, from the meeting ongoing now in Western Massachusetts, the annual meeting of the MTA. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Sarah Robertson. Police are investigating a fatal motor vehicle accident in South Hadley Thursday morning. The crash involved one vehicle with two people inside the car. A 21-year-old man died in the crash on River Lodge Road, and the other passenger was taken to the hospital. Police say the accident occurred around 7.50 a.m. after a sedan veered off the road into a tree for reasons still to be determined by state police. 
A bystander pulled the unidentified driver out of the car, and he was transported to Bay State Medical Center, where he was pronounced dead. The other young man in the vehicle had to be removed by South Hadley firefighters and received non-life-threatening injuries. The state's highest court has ruled that criminal cases against the former superintendent and former medical director at the Holyoke Soldiers' Home can resume a year and a half after a Hampton Superior Court judge had dismissed a grand jury indictments against them. The Supreme Judicial Court ruled 5-2 to two Thursday that the Superior Court judge had erred in dismissing the indictments against Bennett Walsh and Dr. David Clinton back in the fall of 2021. The Attorney General's office, which was at the time headed by now Governor Maura Healey, had appealed the lower court's decision to the SJC. Walsh, who was the superintendent of the soldiers' home, and Clinton, who was the medical director, were charged with elder neglect for their alleged failure to provide services or treatments to veterans at the soldiers' home during the 2020 COVID-19 outbreak, in which more than 70 veterans died. The ruling returns the case to the Hampton Superior Court. A new petition will come before Leverett voters on Saturday at the annual town meeting. The town of Leverett will be asking for legislative support to allow permanent non-citizen residents the ability to vote. In the town's most recent warrant, Article 29 asks to see if the town will vote to petition the state legislature to grant non-citizen permanent residents the ability to vote in all Leverett town meetings, elections, and actions, and to serve on elected boards and committees. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los republicanos de la Cámara de Representantes aprobaron por poco el miércoles una legislación radical que elevaría el techo legal de la deuda del gobierno en 1.5 billones de dólares a cambio de fuertes restricciones de gastos, una victoria táctica para el presidente Kevin McCarthy, mientras desafía al presidente Joe Biden a negociar y evitar un incumplimiento federal catastrófico este verano. Biden ha amenazado con vetar el paquete republicano, que de todos modos casi no tiene posibilidades de ser aprobado por el Senado demócrata, y hasta ahora el presidente se ha negado a negociar el techo de la deuda que, según insiste la Casa Blanca, debe levantarse sin condiciones para garantizar que Estados Unidos pague sus deudas. Los republicanos tienen una mayoría de cinco escaños en la Cámara y se enfrentaron a varias ausencias esta semana, lo que dejó a McCarthy casi sin votos de sobra. Al final, el orador perdió cuatro votos republicanos republicanos negativos y todos los demócratas se opusieron. En otras informaciones, la Corte Suprema habla con una sola voz en respuesta a las críticas recientes a las prácticas éticas de los jueces. No hay necesidad de arreglar lo que no está roto. La respuesta de los jueces sorprendió a algunos críticos y expertos en ética como sordos en un momento de mayor atención sobre los viajes de los jueces y las transacciones comerciales privadas. Eso ocurre en el contexto de una caída histórica en la aprobación pública según lo medido por las encuestas de opinión. Los seis conservadores y los tres liberales de la Corte parecen estar unidos en este principio particular. Sobre ética, establecerán sus propias reglas y policía entre ellos mismos. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is our regular segment, Your State You, with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who is in western Massachusetts today. The annual meeting of the MTA is in Springfield, western Massachusetts. Is this a first, Max? And what are you doing there? 
Well, uh, let's see. We are having, yes, Bill, this is a first. Um, this is the 178th annual meeting of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We were founded in 1845, and now we are the largest uh, union in New England, 115,000 public school and college and university educators in Massachusetts. And every year, right around this time, we have an annual meeting in which we debate all kinds of plans for the future and the issues that we're confronting and, of course, pass our budget and other kind of items directing how we what we should focus on the coming year. There will be about a thousand members in person at the Mass Mutual Center in Springfield, as well as members um, online. We're doing this hybrid this year. What are the major issues? What are the plans? Well, we have before us, um, you know, coming out of the incredible fair share amendment victory, that is the millionaire's tax that we all passed, the MTA leading on that in November. Now we're fighting to make sure the money gets spent in good ways uh, for public schools and colleges, high quality, debt-free public higher education, living wages for paraprofessionals, um, more funds for our greening of our school and college buildings and many other goals. So that's funding on the funding side. But we're also um, fighting to end uh, high stakes testing, the high stakes punitive nature of the, the MCAS system that um, is detrimental to our curriculum to all students, but especially students of color and students from working class districts. Um, we're fighting for fair retirement for retirees. Um, we're, we're talking about um, the right to strike, which is illegal for public sector workers in Massachusetts. And we have a proposal to fix that, that longstanding um, problem. And of course, we're trying to pass something called the Cherish Act for public higher education. This is a blueprint for high quality, debt-free public higher education for every resident of the Commonwealth. We were just speaking with State Representative Minnie Dom, who praised the budget. Do you praise this budget when it comes to support for K through 12 and for higher ed? You know, budgets are huge budgets, 50 something million billion dollar budget has lots of good in there. Um, but uh, and so certainly there's one of the highest spending on Chapter 70, the basic investment in K-12 schools. There's additional funds that are proposed for um, K-12 out of the fair share amendment set aside. So they've created this fund now where all the revenues from the millionaires tax are gonna to go to one fund, pretty much split equally between um, public education and uh, transportation, roads, bridges, and public transportation. And there's of course wonderful things in there that have been proposed for K-12 education, but uh, the house budget is far below in terms of what it, the governor proposed to spend for public higher education. And obviously Rep. Dom and Senator Cumberford and others here where public higher education is so central to our life and our, and our, our economy, um, that's disappointing. And so we are working very hard for the Senate um, to do much better on investments in public higher ed. And I will say one of the big um, failures of uh, the House budget and frankly the governor's proposal was including hundreds of millions of dollars of tax cuts for the 1%, which is really appalling our members. There's lots of anger out there that they would take our victory on the fair share amendment and try to return some of that to people who lead it, need it least. And how do you really feel, Max? Well, I mean, it's just, you know, we're going to work on this. And we have allies in the Senate, including Senator Cumberford, who's really going to work very hard to soften that blow. There are good tax cuts that were made 
for renters, for elderly, for working class people, uh, people taking care of um, disabled family members or children. That's all good, but the idea that we would spend $400 million returning money to the 1% is just unacceptable. We're going to be working all the way to when the budget gets signed to um, get rid of that. Max Page, why do you think the governor... I've been surprised at her position in that regard. Why do you think she's including that tax break in her proposals? Um, Well, I, I will say that the governor during the campaign... Uh, did talk about tax cuts, that, that she would do tax reform. And we, we the MTA, the Raise Up Mass Coalition that was behind the Fair Share Amendment, proposed all kinds of reforms, including closing corporate loopholes and other things. Uh, we were stunned that she would do so much for the 1%. And I'm really not sure. I think there is um, there's an instinct of kind of balancing, uh, allegedly balancing things out. Well, we... I endorsed the fair share amendment and we got that passed and now I have to do something for the 1%. That's not, there's not a balance in this society. There's 1% and there's the 99%. So, um, and even with the passage of the fair share amendment, we have only made our state's tax system fairer, not completely fair at all, but fairer, meaning the, the top 1% are paying roughly the same percentage of their income that the lowest 10% are now paying. So that's an improvement but that's not nearly where we want to go. And if we're talking about competitiveness, which is the word of the day, how do we remain competitive as an economy? What you do is you invest in public education, you invest in transportation, you invest in healthcare, you invest in housing, which is decimating working and middle-class folks in this state, not give back money to the millionaires and billionaires. Max, you're in Springfield, and we'll let you go back to your the conference and the meeting of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, of which you are the president. I'd like to know, was there pushback at all for having your annual meeting in western Massachusetts? Those of us who live out here always have a bit of a chip on our shoulders, feeling that we're not really uh, respected or deserve, or, or do, do we receive the resources from statewide organizations or the state? Any pushback from your membership from having to come to Springfield? You know, I'll see. I don't think so. I mean, certainly it's a it's a longer drive for the people who, you know, many people around Boston used to take the tea in to the meeting. Um, but I remind everyone that the, the rest of us who live, uh, you know, in Western Mass or, or even deeper Western Mass, meaning the Berkshires, have been driving hours and hours for years and years to those meetings. So I think it's great to move the, the meetings around. We have Springfield here this year and next year, and then we'll see where we where we go next. But one thing we know, since we have 178 years under our belt, there will be 179th and 80, 180th and on and on, because this is an essential union, an essential organization in the Commonwealth. And wouldn't it be nice if they could just hop on a train? Well, let's get that done. We're getting closer to having something like that, I hope. We leave it there. Max Page, this has been Your State You with Massachusetts Teachers Association President Max Page, who is in Springfield today at their annual meeting. Thank you, Max. Thank you so much. Bye. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Food. Stories about food from people who grow it, prepare it, and eat it. Field Notes, an afternoon of storytelling. And I didn't know this, but owls hiss. CISA, the local hero folks, welcome you to Field Notes, Sunday, April 30th at the Academy of Music. Turns out, not the only one who's ever thought about eating bugs. Spend an afternoon at the Academy with farmers, chefs, and just plain food lovers as they share stories of life in the food chain. If you look at the architecture of a dairy cow, you wouldn't think she could move very fast. I'm here to tell you that she can. Field Notes, a glimpse into the lives of the people who grow and cook the local food we love. From the poignant to the hilarious, get tickets now at the Academy of Music box office or website. Field Notes, true tales from local tables, farms, and kitchens. This Sunday, April 30th at 2, Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Francis Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. And this indeed is Artbeat with our Artbeats host, Donabelle Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donabelle, the microphone's yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, art is a form of visual communication. And when we look at art, we often question what that message is, or at least I do. My guest today, Ashley Eliza Williams, is an artist who explores the notion of communication in language, both human and non-human, as a way to discover alternative ways of connectivity. Please welcome Ashley Eliza. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> Ashley, when I see your work, I'm struck by the sense of quietness in the images and sculpture, and I know this is very intentional. Can you speak about that, please? The quietness. I mean, I uh, was a very shy kid, and um, I became really interested in other beings and the way other beings communicate. I think I was kind of envious of the way trees communicate and the way you know, snails communicate. Um, I think a lot about loneliness and you know, human loneliness and also the loneliness, um, like ecological loneliness, the fact that we live in a world where you know, human beings uh, don't encounter moths as much as they used to. And also a moth and a salamander don't, don't connect as much as they used to. And mm. just thinking about 
that kind of um, loss or kind of the, the lack of communication um, mm. that's happening or fewer connections that are happening. Um, fewer con um, mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, this, this fascinates me because as we are now thinking about the environment and our times and sort of, yes, the decimation of particular um, populations of species, um, you're interested in the interspecies communication um, that is what you perceive possible through your artwork. And could you describe for us on radio here what your work looks like or what you portray in your work? Oh, well, uh, I'm a painter and a sculptor, um, and I'm really interested in kind of the storytelling that happens when you just put two things side by side. So I have a bunch of little things, little um, kind of sculptures and paintings that are looking at each other and kind of reacting and interacting in different ways. You know, a spine will, of a sculpture will be reaching out and trying to connect with a painting or two paintings will be reflecting each other, um, kind of thinking about all the weird and wonderful ways that creatures talk to each other and connect with each other. Well, I love the title of your show. It's called Rocks, Squids, Clouds, and Other Beings. And, you know, your work sort of questions how can we fully understand these things, a cloud, a tree, a rock, and can we develop a vocabulary that enables us to do that? Can you describe some of the things that you are sort of, are, are you kind of uh, acting as a, a mediator between these things when you create these? artworks? I, I think I'm just, I'm curious about the question, like what is language? Mm. What is, what is connection? What is communication? Mm. Uh, and I think there's something like one of the most hopeful things about humans is that we want to understand other beings that like a scientist will spend their entire career trying to understand, you know, a, a single kind of salamander that's living on a single rock. Uh, you know, in a, in a corner of Argentina. Um, and so, yes, I'm just I'm curious about that question. Like, why do we desire that? And what does it look like mm. when we mm. try? And like the weirdness of the failures. Like, I keep trying mm. to understand rocks. <laughs> like, I spend time <laughs> with rocks. Uh, and they're very hard to understand. <laughs> so, <laughs> they're quite uh, stoic, aren't they? <laughs> So, like, and, uh, so, yeah, I think the most of the things that I do are uh, communication attempts and communication failures. Uh, mm. um, but I think there's some beauty in that, too, like miscommunications, um, attempts and tries, uh, mm. and that like, desire and longing in that. Well, you, it's interesting that you mentioned science because your work looks like you are you are holding experiments in your studio. Uh, there's documentation, there are studies, there are um, you know, ways in which you record what you see, and you actually work with scientists. Can you talk about that? Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, I've been working with scientists for a long time now, um, and my partner is a scientist, and um, I am interested in the in like the visual language of science. I've been thinking a lot about footnotes and field notes, and a lot of my paintings have, um, you know, footnotes at the bottom. Uh, and I've been thinking about 
the ways that scientists need to cite their work, the citations that are at the bottom of a paper, and mm-hmm. um, wondering about like what it would look like if artists uh, did the same thing. Like, what if, as part of our work, we had to cite not only all the the uh, you know people who have influenced us, but also all the creatures. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. the snails that we encounter or the animals we pet on the way to the studio or, you know, the tree that is a part of the, of the um, you know, painting surface we're working on. So, mm. yeah. I, I mean, I I, if the, the, the amount of detail that I see in your work, I know lichens are something that you definitely study. And when you come up and see these forms, in this show at Pulp in Holyoke, you are actually looking at uh, documentation. It feels like you're looking at documentation and it, it, it really strikes me how much of a curious observer you are um, in that way. And so could you talk briefly about some of the work with scientists that you've done recently? I am obsessed with lichen <laughs> and I have recently been on a couple of field expeditions with uh, lichenologists, um, spending time with them collecting lichens and learning more about lichens, which has been amazing. Um, And I also just did a residency at Shoals Marine Lab, which is a little, Mm. um, it's a um, field station on an island off the coast of Maine. (laughs) And uh, I got to spend time with scientists for a couple of weeks learning about sea creatures and communications between uh, sea creatures. And Mm. um, it was just amazing to be able to interview the scientists and to learn more about all of the, all the beings they're working with um, Mm. and hearing their their stories about why they have dedicated their lives to studying this one strange kind of snail (laughs) or or Anemone. I just I love I love the stories and I love the like wonder in that and those decisions that people make. So and, and dedication. Yes. Sorry, Belle. Go ahead. Well, I, I'd like to ask. I'd like to ask. I'd like to ask Ashley Eliza Williams, whose solo exhibition at the Pulp is ongoing now. The title again is Rocks, Squids, Clouds, and Other Beings. I understand that the show itself only has another couple days. If we want to see it. We need to go. Uh, Pulp, of course, being down on Ray Street, really easy to get to. A lot of free, free parking. Uh, but the exhibition's only up another couple of days, yes? No? That's right. It's up um, today uh, and Saturday and Sunday. And uh, Sunday is the last day. So I hope everybody gets a chance to come visit. And just so I'm clear, your major uh, medium of... of uh, of putting this uh, this art together about the rocks and the squids and the clouds and the other beings is is what they are mostly paintings uh, so paintings on paper and I also have some small sculptures and paintings looking at each other and um, yes I think that's about it <laughs> paintings and sculptures and people can <laughs> people I take it this pulp gallery can people buy the art when they say that is amazing I'd like to have that in my house. <laughs> Is this is the art available for purchase? Uh, yes, it is, uh, and uh, yeah, I, uh, some of the work has already sold, which is really wonderful. Okay. Yes. So you can't you can't I'm... you can't take the piece that has a red dot by it, but there are others still still. <laughs> 
that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I highly suggest that you look at this show and if you can have them live in your house because they're quite amazing and wonderful. Ashley Eliza Williams, thank you so much for joining us today. I love your vision and uh, thank you for sharing your work with us. Oh my goodness, thank you so much, Donabelle. This has been really fun. And thank you, Donabelle, for bringing amazing artists on our show. We really appreciate them and you. This has been Artbeat, Artbeat with Donabelle Casas. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Drums keep pounding a rhythm to the brain. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. Get takeout, save 30%. Get candles, or hit the links, save 30%. Dog grooming, outdoor recreation, burritos, save 30%. The Shop 30 store, full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were gonna buy anyway. The Shop 30 store, open right now at whmp.com. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. It's the country. Correspondent Wendy Gillette has our top story. A Utah judge will consider today a request from Planned Parenthood to delay implementing a statewide ban on abortion scheduled to take effect next week. The group operates three of four clinics in the state that provide abortions. In Nebraska, a six-week abortion ban failed to advance in the state legislature. A bill that would have banned almost all abortions was voted down in the South Carolina Senate. All systems are go for another interest rate hike. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger with details on an updated inflation gauge. This report puts the Fed on track to continue its rate hike campaign when it meets next week. Most economists believe we will get a quarter of a percentage point increase. The core personal consumption expenditures price index rose 0.3 percent. That is the 10th increase in a year. In Ukraine... Death and destruction after Russia fired more than 20 cruise missiles, killing at least 19 people, including two children. Many of the victims were in an apartment building in central Uman. Officials in Kyiv say Ukraine's Air Force intercepted 11 missiles and two drones headed for the capital. A tornado hit the Florida panhandle, ripping off roofs of homes, uprooting trees. The same system dumped hail on parts of Georgia. The Weather Channel's meteorologist Stacey Abrams says the rising Mississippi is causing problems elsewhere. Water is inundating homes and businesses on the riverbanks of multiple states, including Iowa. The cause of the flooding? Melting snow from a winter that broke multiple records. 
We've got about 20 inches of water in the basement. You're on the water, so you have to take the good with the bad. The days of diesel-powered trains could be numbered in California. The state's Air Resources Board has approved a first-in-the-nation plan to cut emissions by banning locomotive engines more than 23 years old. They'd be out by the year 2030. Community organizer Alfredo Angulo. Yes, it'll cost them a lot of money, but what will cost us more money is if we continue with business as usual and continue our reliance on fossil fuels. Overseas, the head of the BBC has resigned. A report found Richard Sharp failed to disclose a potential conflict of interest after he helped arrange a loan for former Prime Minister Boris Johnson two years ago. I feel that this matter may well be a distraction from the corporation's good work were I to remain in post until the end of my term. Sharp is a former Goldman Sachs banker and Conservative Party donor. Dow up 31. This is CBS News. Streamline how you hire with Indeed. Their powerful hiring platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. My brother-in-law died suddenly, and now my sister and her kids have to sell their home. That's why I told my husband we could not put off getting life insurance any longer. An agent offered us a 10-year, $500,000 policy for nearly $50 a month. Then we called SelectQuote. SelectQuote found us identical coverage for only $19 a month, a savings of $369 a year. Whether you need a $500,000 policy or a $5 million policy, Select Quote could save you more than 50% on term life insurance. For your free quote, call Select Quote at 1 800 330 1991. That's 1 800 330 1991. Or go to SelectQuote.com. That's 1 800 330 1991. Select Quote. We shop, you save. Full details on example policies at selectquote.com slash commercials. A new analysis of the dangers of walking. It can be dangerous out there. A new report says pedestrian deaths on American roads have risen by more than 70% since 20... Happy Friday for WHMP News. I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. The Amherst School Building Project is getting the green light from the state. The Massachusetts School Building Authority voted unanimously Wednesday to support the Amherst Elementary School Building Project, estimated at about $97.5 million, with a construction grant that could be as high as $40.5 million. The move authorizes the executive director to execute a project scope and budget agreement and project funding agreement with the town. A townwide special election for the debt exclusion vote is scheduled for Tuesday, May 2nd. The state's highest court has ruled that nearly 30,000 people who pled guilty or were convicted of drunk driving charges are eligible for a new trial. Wednesday's Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling follows an investigation into the state police office of alcohol testing. Investigators found test results from the breathalyzers were flawed because the machines were not calibrated correctly. Hamden District Attorney Anthony DiGolini voluntarily suspended the use of breathalyzer results in OUI prosecutions in 2019 after it was discovered that the Massachusetts Office of Alcohol Testing had been withholding information from defense attorneys in OUI cases. Greenfield's Public Safety Commissioner David Muscarolito announced he would be stepping down as the chair of the commission at Wednesday's meeting. The city council recently affirmed new appointees to the commission, most recently Amy McMahon, and the commission plans to reorganize at May's meeting when they have a full complement of people. For WHMP News, I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. Partly to mostly sunny this afternoon, a high of 58 to 62. 
And for tonight, evening temperatures will be in the 50s and 40s with scattered clouds, an overnight low of 34 to 40. Mostly cloudy on Friday, a high of 62 to 66. Showers drizzle, a steady rain possible on Saturday with a high in the mid-50s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, Bill, I'm very excited about our guest today. We're going to be talking to Tony Trishka about his upcoming appearance at the Drake. And at 1030, we have Joseph Bernard. He is the attorney who handled, uh, who represented the defendant. The, uh, the Supreme Judicial Court just uh, said that 27,000 um, people who were convicted of uh, operating under the influence in Massachusetts can uh, apply for a new trial. Um, because the breathalyzer machine wasn't properly calibrated. We're going to be talking to Joe at the bottom of the hour. And uh, meanwhile, I am very excited to talk up to Tony Trishka, who really has been described as one of the most, uh, if not the most, influential banjo players in the world. That is the world. And he is going to be at the Drake on May 6th. Hello, Tony. Hi, Buzz. How are you? Oh, I'm great, and I'm very excited to be talking to you. Um, you uh, have over a half a century of wowing people um, with your uh, musical acumen, your creativity, your approach to your instrument, and, of course, your technical prowess on the banjo. So I just want to thank you for not only coming here today, but also for what's going to happen on May 6th. So uh, the Drake, we love the Drake. How'd you, how did the Drake get in touch with you? How did you get in touch with the Drake? Uh, I have an agent um, out of Nashville named Lee Olson, and he, um, we were putting together a Northeast tour, even though I live in the Northeast also, so it's not like going way down south or out west. But, uh, and uh, that came up in his viewfinder, and it was like, yeah, let's do the Drake, absolutely. Let's do the Drake. And that's how they came about. He put together this tour. And... The performance is called Earl Jam. It is a tribute to Earl Scruggs. Could you tell us about Earl Jam, how it came to be, and why? Well, Earl Jam is a name I came up with. Um, I, I've been friendly with the Scruggs, the Earl Scruggs family, for many years. I was I got pretty friendly with Earl in his later years, and I kept hearing about these jam sessions that Earl would have with John Hartford, he who wrote "Gentle on My Mind." Um, and John Hartford would have these jams at his house in Nashville, and he would always lay out a cassette machine and just record every single note that was played. And he happened to give these recordings to uh, a friend of mine who lives up in Syracuse, New York, uh, because he wanted to have all these important recordings of tunes that Earl Scruggs had never recorded, uh, including Here Comes the Bride. Uh, they would jam on just all sorts of things, old time, new time, bluegrass, all sorts of things. But again, very rare recordings. And uh, my friend sent a thumb drive of these over to me, and I started pouring through them and started transcribing them uh, and just found all this amazing stuff that Earl Scruggs, as I said, had never recorded. And also using certain licks and techniques that he'd never, that I'd never heard him use on other recordings. So it was just really exciting to me. And then I started thinking, well, gee, I should put together a band to play some of these tunes, uh, which is how the band Earl Jam came to, uh, came to being. 
And uh, also I decided, why don't I just start recording some of these things? So everyone else out there who loves bluegrass, and loves Earl Scruggs and John Hartford, that they'll be able to, you know, be privy to some of these rare recordings. And uh, even though I'm just taking Earl Scruggs solos and playing them note for note, uh, because they're so amazing <laughs> and just get them out to the world. You have called Earl your North star. You've called it a lifetime pathway and you've said, I'm not alone. Now that's, that's something coming from Tony Trishka because you are highly regarded, not just as a musician, but as an innovator in music, as an educator, you've influenced everyone from comedian and banjo player, uh, Steve Martin, Bella Fleck, some really important names uh, of people who uh, played that remarkable instrument that you've um, you've wowed people with for so many years. And here, Earl Scruggs is you are trying to um, what make concretize his music, mm. even music that nobody's ever heard for the ages. It's it's a pretty lofty ambition, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, you're you're right. It's a lofty ambition trying to do that. But all I'm doing is taking his his music, his like I say, his solos, note for note that he played in these jam sessions, and uh, and just putting them out there to the world so everyone else can so I can share what I've learned about his genius and putting it out there. And it just you know, I'd say every two or three or four days I'm working on some new tune that that I found in these jam sessions. And, uh, and it's just exciting to be able to play and record these songs and do them on stage with these notes going through my fingers and they're Earl's fingers, Earl's fingers, Earl's notes. Uh, Maybe they're Earl's fingers. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wish I had Earl's fingers. <laughs> I think many people think you do. So you're not only on tour with Earl Jam, this tribute to Earl Scruggs, but you also are in the studio. You're producing an album right now um, under a new label uh, to try to memorialize his music, right? That's correct. Yeah, as I say, I'm taking his exact solos note for note I don't even have to think about what to play. It's right there on paper, you know, where I've transcribed it. And uh, in some cases, I've tried to replicate what was done in the jam sessions. There's one tune I do. It's a, a fiddle tune that uh, where I feature, that in the original recording featured bass, fiddle, and banjo. John Hartford on fiddle and, and uh, Earl Scruggs on banjo, of course, and someone playing bass. It doesn't indicate who it is. And I've replicated that. But another situations and other recordings where it's just fiddle and banjo, just the two of them. Uh, it's uh, I'm using um, a full band, let's say. And most of the time there aren't vocals here and there. There are some vocals, but I have vocals on a lot, not all, but a lot of the tunes. And uh, for instance, on um, Here Comes the Bride, uh, the, the, in the original recording, it just it's Earl and John just sitting around playing the tune, which is a pretty goofy thing to jam on. And John Hartford treats it like a fiddle tune. And what John Hartford used to do is he would dance line. He'd go out on stage with a plywood board and do a buck and wing or some sort of a <laughs> clogging dance while he played the fiddle or while he played the banjo. And in this case, I tried to replicate that by having someone dance along to the uh, on the recording, dance with uh, the banjo and the fiddle. So... It's uh, it's really been a fun journey, and it's not over yet. I'm going down to Nashville 
tomorrow to do uh, some more recording on Sunday. Hi, this is Bill. I have a question for you. I grew up listening to Flatten Scruggs, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering whether their music and the uh, Foggy Mountain Boys, if, does that live on? Is that duo what they did? Yeah, I mean, they're both gone, of course. But yeah, their music lives on, I would say, certainly second most influential to Bill Monroe, who's the father of bluegrass music, who started... Bluegrass music, as we know it today, started in October of 1945 when Earl Scruggs joined Bill Monroe. uh, And Lester Flatt was already in the band. So the two of them were in the band and uh, stayed there from 1945 to 1948. And then they broke off to start the Foggy Mountain Boys, which didn't make Bill Monroe that happy because if you had Flatt and Scruggs in your band, you wouldn't be happy to have two of the geniuses of bluegrass leave. and so between them and Bill Monroe, and in some ways you could almost say that Platten's Scruggs are more influential because Earl's wife, Louise, was their manager starting in the 50s. And um, I was friendly with her, and she would say that uh, people would call call up Earl's house, you know, Louise's house, and say, hey, I'd like to speak to Earl. Louise would answer and say, oh, what's it about? And they'd say, well, I'd like to book Flatten Scruggs. And she would say, oh, well, you can talk to me about that. And the person would say, oh, well, I'd rather talk to Earl. And she'd say, well, you talk to me or you don't get Flatt and Scruggs. And for a woman to be managing Flatt and Scruggs back then, managing anybody in the, you know, in the business sense was really remarkable. And uh, she had a lot of headwinds to fight. But she was the one that got Columbia Records to put out uh, the Ballad of Jed Clampett with Flatt and Scruggs when it was such a hit on the on television. And uh, on and on, she positioned them in many different ways to be very popular, more popular than Bill Monroe. And so I'd say they had a profound influence on bluegrass music, which continues to this day. I I don't know what has happened with COVID and post-COVID in uh, San Francisco, but there was an amazing festival called Hardly Strictly Bluegrass that went on for years uh, in, in, in the Bay Area. And it just blew away the city. Uh, six stages, hardly strictly bluegrass, but a lot of bluegrass. I'm wondering if you could right. talk to us for a bit about how bluegrass has influenced all other genres or so many other genres of music that we listen to and just accept as part of the American songbook at this point. Wow, you're throwing me a curveball here. I have to think about that. Uh, I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. I know hardly strictly bluegrass. I got to play there a number of years ago when uh, actually Earl was actually at that very festival that I was at, and it's a fantastic festival. Um, You know, it's hard to say. It's funny because a lot of people, especially in the country field, like Ricky Skagg started with bluegrass, went to country, became a pretty big country star, and then when other people supplanted his position, I guess you could say he went back to bluegrass. But I mean, I can think of one example. Uh, you mentioned Buzz Era, a jazz fan, a big jazz fan. Indeed. And uh, Charlie Hayden, who used to play with Ornette Coleman, um, he was he had a family country, country family band, and they would play Old Joe Clark. So uh, I think on on uh, Ornette Coleman's first album, the jazz saxophonist, uh, Ornette Coleman. Uh, Charlie Hayden took a bass solo and he played the, the melody of old Joe Clark, which is this is old fiddle tune. So um, it cre- crept into uh, it crept into jazz in that way. Also, Gary Burton, I think it's not his first album, almost his first album, 1965, recorded Tennessee Firebird, uh, where he was kind of playing 
uh, bluegrass licks on the vibes, and he had Sonny and Bob the Osborne brothers who wrote Rocky Top. They were on there also, so it was this very early jazz bluegrass fusion. Uh, so I mean, those are a couple of examples off the top of my head that I can think of where bluegrass infiltrated. And you know, there's been banjo and, and rock and roll in various places. Um, Led Zeppelin, I think, and Hangman, they got some, and the Who had uh, had banjo on the tune. So it kind of creeps in there from place to place. Well, it is, uh, we are talking to Tony Trishka, and he is known by many as the father of modern bluegrass, and some have called him the most influential, if not among the most influential banjo players in the world. He is a musicologist, which is evident just talking to him today, and he's going to be appearing at the Drake on May 6th. He is going to be doing a tribute to Earl Scruggs, which he is calling Earl Jam. We're going to be back we have more to talk about with Tony Triska right after this. Blue moon up Kentucky, keep on shining. Shine on the one that's gone and left me blue. It was on a moonlight night, the stars shining bright. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Fill in the blanks. H-A-M-B blank R-G-E-R. You get it? How about B blank T-T-E-R L blank N-C-H. I don't have a hard time filling in the blanks. You? If you need to fill in the blanks on your grocery list, pop into State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits right in downtown Northampton. Swing into their big free parking lot between classes before pickup, after drop-off, and fill in the blanks on your grocery list. Or pick up a quick stroller sandwich for lunch for you or your kids. Or heck, you could do all of your grocery shopping there. No blanks left on the list. And did I mention that they're called State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits? You could also pick up some L-I-Q blank O-R. You can fill in all the blanks on your grocery list at State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on State Street, downtown Northampton. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. 
And we are talking to talk with uh, renowned uh, Tony Trishka, who's known by many as the father of modern bluegrass and who will be appearing at the Drake in the center of Amherst on May 6th. I, um, what time will that concert be, if you know? I don't have it in front of me. Um, let me see. Oh, I see. It's at 8 yeah, o'clock. Saturday, eight o'clock, May yeah. 6th at 8 o'clock. Um, and uh, it's really, tickets are cheap. $20 advanced tickets. $30 to get in to see one of the really legendary um, people in bluegrass and players of that incredible five-string instrument, the banjo. I wanted to ask you, Tony Trishka, about how you came to the banjo. What I've read, legend has it, that you started out as an acoustic guitar player, and when you were about 13, you had to beg your parents to get you a banjo. And I'm wondering, A, is that true? And B, why? Well, um, you're right. I started... Well, I started, you know, in school flute and then piano, and then I started getting into folk music, you know, during the folk scare of the early 60s, as they call it. And um, I was I was actually writing protest songs because I was really into Bob Dylan back then. Got a boy. At the age of thir- I was at the age of 13 doing that and um, even got to meet Bob Dylan uh, when I was 14, which is another story. But, um, but I just uh, happened to hear a group called the Kingston Trio, from out in California who were really popular and had Tom Dooley and a song called The MTA, which is a song about the Metropolitan Transit Authority in Boston. Uh, And there was a banjo solo in there that just blew me away by their banjo player, Dave Gard. And so I was able to, uh, I started just tuning my guitar like a banjo so that I could get those notes in my fingers as close as I could figure from that solo. And yes, indeed, I pestered my parents mercilessly until they bought me a banjo, I think, for my 14th, for our Christmas on our 14th, in my 14th year. And that was it, and I was gone. And uh, my parents found me a banjo teacher who didn't really teach me the picking style that I wanted. But um, he was friendly with Bob Dylan from, uh, again, this guitar player, my uh, banjo teacher. He was friendly with Bob Dylan from Village Days and got to meet Bob back when I was 14 through that banjo teacher, but, uh, which is another story. But uh, I finally found this guy who played bluegrass banjo and he gave me lessons and that was it. I was, well, I certainly uh, understand the inspiration from the Kingston Trio song, the MTA. And, but uh, what is it about the instrument that you fell in love with? It's a strange instrument. It's a five string instrument. It's like, it's got a, a sort of tambourine for a, <laughs> for a body. Uh, right. What What is it? Uh, you know, I've, it's, it's a really good question. I think it's just the sound of it. It's just the sound of it. And I know that's a very simplistic answer, but um, uh, I've interviewed, I've written books, and uh, I have this online banjo school where I've interviewed over 50 people, 50, you know, renowned banjo players. And if you ask them what got you into it, they'll almost always say the sound of it, which is kind of, Again, I guess that simplistic. I guess that does says it, say it all. Now that I'm thinking about, it. I want to hear about your. Uh, you actually teach online, the banjo, don't right. you? Yeah, um, there's a company named Artist Works out of Napa, California, and uh, they've started this um, this outfit called uh, Artist Works, and they have, oh, I think over 35 schools in jazz, rock, bluegrass. And uh, I helped put together the Bluegrass School with some you know, friends of mine who were great players. 
Uh, and I was the first bluegrass person on there. They said, decided they wanted to have someone to teach banjo. And um, I have over 300. It's called the Tony Triscuit School of Banjo. And I've got over 300 lessons, you know, uh, filmed with, you know, three camera shoots and that sort of thing. And I've got um, over 50 interviews with people like Steve Martin and Bela Fleck, who is uh, just one of my favorite band, banjo players in the world. And, you know, you talk about influential. He's really influential with the Fleck tones and all sorts of amazing things that he's been doing. Well, in, in the couple um, of minutes we have left, I want to, I don't mean to embarrass you, but so many people say that you've had such an influence on so many banjo players and on bluegrass itself that you are an innovator. Can, can, I don't want to, you know, embarrass you, but what is it that makes people find you so influential? What's different about Tony Trishka's understanding and approach to bluegrass music? I think, uh, in the early 70s, uh, or let's say in the late 60s, we, we sort of thought we'd heard that Bill Monroe was creating a new kind of bluegrass, but we never found out what that was. And without trying to, um, I was playing with these folks in New York City named uh, Andy Statman, Kenny Kosek, Stacey Phillips, people like that. And we all were coming out of bluegrass, but we were listening to Hawaiian music, in some cases Jewish music, jazz. I was really into like fusion music with Mahavishnu Orchestra and Chick Corea, Return to Forever, Weather Report groups like that, and listening to John Coltrane, Miles Davis. And the, not that I was a jazz player at all, but those influences were coming into my fingers and into my heart and soul, I guess you could say. And when I would start writing tunes, that the idea that, well, we can break down boundaries and it doesn't have to be just this one way. And again, coming out of the late 60s with the Beatles and all everything that they did and all those other musicians. So it was just taking bluegrass and pointing in a new direction, I guess, without even thinking about that that's what we were doing. And when my first record came out, it would get these somewhat wilting reviews in the traditional bluegrass uh, press. Um, And Bailiff liked to name one person, had that first album, and when he was 16 years old, started taking lessons from me. And, you know, almost immediately I could see, okay, this guy's really got it. And he would... uh, Anyway, it's, it's that sort of thing, and a lot of people didn't like it, but there were other people that really were influenced by it. Oh, we can try to do different things with this music. Well, and um, so well, that, I think there's a lot of people who are indebted to you, um, both as musicians but also as fans. Um, you have, uh, for over 50 years, uh, entertained and enriched the lives of so many. It is Tony Trishka we've been speaking with. His Earl Jam tribute to Earl Scruggs will be on full display at the Drake um, at a very modest entrance fee. It'll be on May 6th at 8 o'clock. You could go to the Drake in Amherst and purchase tickets, and you really should. The, the guy is really a generational musician, and I feel uh, so grateful that you spent time with us today, Tony Trishka. Thank you, Buzz, and thank you, Bill. It's it's been an, uh, just a real pleasure, and I so appreciate the time. And break a leg, today. break a leg next Saturday. Okay. Okay. I'll try not to, but thank you. <laughs> okay, and uh, listeners, we are going to have a very special guest coming up. He is uh, the defense attorney uh, Joe Bernard, who brought to the Supreme Judicial Court his uh, his case that has changed many lives. Twenty seven thousand cases can ask for a new trial as a result of Joe's work. We'll be back with Joe Bernard right after these messages. But did he ever return? No, he never returned. And his fate is still unlearned. He may ride forever. 
a Boston, he's a man who never returned. Charlie's wife goes down to the Scully Square station every day at quarter past two. And through the open window, she hands Charlie a sandwich as the train comes rumbling through. Charges are eligible for a new trial. Wednesday's Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruling follows an investigation into the state police office of alcohol testing. Investigators found test results from the breathalyzers were flawed because the machines were not calibrated correctly. Hamden District Attorney Anthony DiGolini voluntarily suspended the use of breathalyzer results in OUI prosecutions in 2019 after it was discovered that the Massachusetts Office of Alcohol Testing had been withholding information from defense attorneys in OUI cases. Greenfield's Public Safety Commissioner David Muscarolito announced he would be stepping down as the chair of the commission at Wednesday's meeting. The city council recently affirmed new appointees to the commission, most recently Amy McMahon, and the commission plans to reorganize at May's meeting when they have a full complement of people. For WHMP News, I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. Partly to mostly sunny this afternoon, a high of 58 to 62. And for tonight, evening temperatures will be in the 50s and 40s with scattered clouds, an overnight low of 34 to 40. Mostly cloudy on Friday, a high of 62 to 66. Showers drizzle, a steady rain possible on Saturday with a high in the mid-50s. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Going once, going twice, are you going? This Friday, Riverside Industries' annual auction returns to East Hampton. Come at 6.30 to learn about Riverside, mingle, enjoy local food and beverages under the big top. The auction starts promptly at 7.45. Every dollar directly supports the critical work that Riverside Industries does. Get your tickets soon. This event will sell out. Can't make it? The virtual silent auction is happening right now in the same place you'll get your tickets for the live auction. RSI.org. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items, including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, ebooks, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And here on Talk the Talk, you know, a lot of people enter their chosen field. And they have aspirations. A lot of people, when they enter law school, 
their aspiration is to ride that white horse and to change lives and and to you know carry justice in their uh, on their chest and and spread it. Um, sometimes we end up taking paths that we didn't expect when we had those grandiose imaginings when we started out as young law students. But in fact, every once in a while, someone really does have the kind of impact on the world that uh, you dream about when you're in law school. One of those people is in studio here with Bill and with me. His name is Joseph Bernard. He is an uh, expert criminal lawyer and in particular has been working on operating under the influence cases for many years, as, as well known as any lawyer in Western Massachusetts in that regard. And he scored this past week a major win, not just for his client, um, whose name is Lindsay Hallinan, but for tens of thousands of other litigants in criminal court here in Western Massachusetts. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thank you for the enthusiasm. I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's really, really deserved. So it, it's difficult to know how to approach this this uh, question. I'm just going to do a quick summary. Mr. Newman, feel free to, to jump in. Um, people who are charged with operating under the influence, quite often the standard case is while on routine patrol, I observed a taillight out or somebody crossing marked lanes and I activated my blue lights and I pulled somebody over and then asked them for license and registration and their eyes looked a little bit uh, sort of bloodshot and maybe there was a, an odor of uh, an alcoholic beverage emanating from the cab of the car. I asked them to do field sobriety tests. They didn't do so well, so I gave them the opportunity to take a breath test. Take it away, Joe, from there. What are we talking about with this case involving your client, Lindsay Hallinan, in the Supreme Judicial Court? And we should note, Joe, headlines in the Boston Globe day before yesterday, the Supreme Judicial Court's case on your case, in this case that came from your litigation, 27,000 convicted drivers across the state over eight years being entitled to a new trial. Huge. Mass exoneration. Congratulations. Tell us, tell us about the case. So it began eight years ago. Uh, I remember 2015 gathering with uh, a lot of lawyers in Worcester, and uh, there was a group of us, and the, the trial court of Massachusetts decided to assign five different lawyers uh, to lead as lead counsel in a consolidated class action lawsuit against the Draeger 9510, which is the only breath test machine that we utilize here in Massachusetts. Other states vary, but in Massachusetts, the Draeger Alcotest 9510 is the only machine. And, and it was used for years, and it convicted tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. And the problem was? The problem was, quite frankly, it wasn't being calibrated and maintained properly. Any good measuring device necessitates, mandates, care, and calibration. Now, especially when you're considering forensic science, you want precision. You want, you need and, and expect in forensic science accuracy and precision. And that just wasn't happening for years and years. And it was this concept of almost the fox guarding the hen house. The Office of Alcohol Testing charged with- that, That's run by the state police. Massachusetts State Police Office of Alcohol Testing is correct. That's exactly correct. Uh, they weren't accredited. They were essentially kind of operating in this, this quasi-rogue um, laboratory, 
and nobody was was there was no real checks and balance. So that's why the this the court uh, assigned this statewide litigation 15 years ago. Go back and explain to our listeners, if you would, please, Joe, what the test is supposed to be measuring and why that is important and why the test, as a practical matter, decides whether a person is going to be found guilty or not. Many people hear breath test, breathalyzer, but what in Massachusetts we measure and what convicts people is not breath. It's blood. It's a blood alcohol. And here's the, the, what everyone needs to realize. It's, a, it's an indirect test. You know, it's an indirect test. It's almost like standing on a scale trying to measure your child. You stand on the scale and the child gets on, on, on your back and, and you do some reversion with regards to the mathematics. That's a breath test. A breath test is an indirect measurement of your blood alcohol. And the reason it becomes so much more difficult is that you have thousands of different equations going on, converting a lot of different aspects of the physiological body breathing into this machine and then converting it into a, a blood, uh, and that's the only way we punish people is blood alcohol, not breath. It's okay. a ratio of alcohol in the blood. 2,100 to one, to be very specific. And you need to recognize that that we challenge that, and that becomes a real uh, area that, that we are going to continue to challenge. Before you go on, the numbers that matter, what convicts you, what acquits you, what is in the gray? 0.08. 0.08 or above. And that was mandated you know, some 15 years ago by Melanie's Law. Massachusetts was one of the first or the last states to buy into this. And so now we have this 0.08 conviction by black box. So if you're 0.08 or above, it matters not how you appear on the video, what the officer's opinion is. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of a bright line. Because there is a crime of driving or operating a vehicle while your blood alcohol is 0.08 or above, as well as another crime of driving under the influence. They have the same penalties by and large. And I, and, so, and I'm the, sorry, Bill. And the 0.08 or above is a test you put that in air quotes, and if you fail the, quote, test, you're convicted. That's how this law works, right? Per se, bright line, absolutely correct. Matters not what anybody else says. Point away or above, you're convicted. So defense attorney extraordinaire, uh, Joe Bernard. So what happens is people get pulled over, as I said earlier. There's some field sobriety tests. There's some observation. There may or may not be some evidence that you were driving while under the influence of, of an intoxicating uh, liquor in this case. And so uh, you're offered the opportunity, and there are penalties if you decline, to, uh, to take this breathalyzer test. And this machine has to be calibrated, as you say, to make sure that it's operating properly. So when we're talking about a new trial that's being offered, the possibility of people to uh, file a motion for a new trial in a case in which they'd been convicted based in part or maybe completely on the results of an alcohol breath test. So can you tell us, if somebody files for a new trial and this breath test, which the Supreme Judicial Court said was being done on machines that were inadequate and not reliable, do they get admitted again, the breath test that you failed? Absolutely not. No. And that was all part of this litigation, that the breath test is going to be excluded in this particular time period from 2011 to 2019. Cannot be used. Supreme Judicial Court confirmed all that eight years of litigation. The district attorney's office cannot utilize it. And to, to Dave Sullivan's credit, you need to recognize he, and, uh, he was really way out in front on this two years ago. He, he and his office stood tall, had a, had a, a 
a vetting process, and I've worked very well with that particular office, and they are they they will move affirmatively with any case that I bring, look at it, and and will dismiss it appropriately in the appropriate setting. Joe Bernard, could you go back? What about someone who pled guilty, who admitted to sufficient facts and said, well, yeah, the breathalyzer's there. I got a .09 or a .10. I failed. I'm going to be found guilty of that crime, of operating with a .08 or above, and I'm going to be found guilty of operating under the influence. Uh, Do they get, does that person who pled guilty, essentially, does that person have their, is that person entitled to have that conviction vacated? Absolutely, yes. Punctuate, yes. Any individual who is negatively impacted during this particular time period by way of a plea, trial, absolutely, they they get a second bite at the apple, so to speak. I have a quick question on that point. Um, What happens to people who had to, let's say, lose a job, had to pay for lawyer fees, and all of these costs? Are they compensated? Divorce? divorce, Who knows what what else that happened? I mean, how many lives were directly impacted by what you just said? So we, we have a number, 27,000 or more. But recognize that it's almost impossible to answer that question, but I can tell you every single person of that 27,000 at least suffered $2,500 worth of fines and fees at a minimum. Hmm. Never mind the people who went to jail. Never mind the people who lost their jobs or got divorced. It rocked people's lives all across the state. There's a part of this that I think is so crucial I'd like you to comment on. And it's not only that the machine was faulty, it was not only that the state police uh, did not do what was necessary to make sure that the machine was accurate, not only did the state police not calibrate, not only did the state police do all of those things, they then hid evidence from the defense. They affirmatively and intentionally did not disclose the failures. Bill, I just want to, before Joe responds, they hid it from prosecutors. They hid it from judges who were asking for it. Joe. That is correct. And I, I really want to emphasize that the prosecutors, in their defense, had no idea. The judges had no idea. And that's one of the reasons why the Supreme Judicial Court is saying what they're saying. This is, was an ineffective assistance of counsel. Everybody was operating in the dark. Because the state police, by omission, were intentionally lying to prosecutors, to judges, defendants, and defense lawyers. It, the state police, for years... Yes, my hand is up. Bill Newman, Joe Bernard. I'm listening to that's actual fraud. That's actual tampering with evidence. That's actual obstruction of justice. Should the people responsible be prosecuted in the state police organization? Well, it's not the Department of Public Safety. It's not actually tampering with the evidence. It's failing to disclose the exculpatory evidence. I think. What do you think, Joe? It's a little muddy simply because we weren't provided uh, with particular pieces of evidence that was so crucial for this million-dollar, two-week experts around the world hearing that we had. And the, the most crucial piece of evidence was, were these failed worksheets. They didn't identify them, and they deliberately held them, withheld them from us. What is a failed uh, worksheet? So here is where we are, right? And, and it just ties into some of what you're saying. There was a culture, a dysfunctional culture with this particular lab. And un- unfortunately, a culture of deception and, and, and hostility against judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers. So what happened in this particular case was 
I learned through science that protocols are kind of the building block of any measuring device, that you have to have a particular recipe to calibrate a machine. And without that recipe or protocols, you cannot appropriately calibrate the machine. So I kept coming in, judge, we need the, ca- the protocol, the protocol. And it was about two weeks before this hearing was going to take place. And it finally, the Office of Alcohol Testing said in, in court, we don't have them. We have worksheets. Worksheets, I said, well, if that's what you're going to claim is, is your protocol, I want the worksheets. And the judge, two weeks before that hearing, ordered the Office of Alcohol Testing. And, that, and of course, they gave big pushback that it's too much. These are hard copies. We have to go into files. And by the way, you should have seen their, their filing system, literally boxes, boxes, like banker boxes, because I saw. But it took, it took them the weekend, cause, and they had you know this entire staff going in. They presented them to us two or three days after the weekend, and and they presented all, what they claimed to be all the worksheets that were going to be the protocols. But what they didn't give us and they hid from us are all the times that the machine failed. You, you attempt a calibration, and it didn't work. They didn't give us that. They give us all. So we didn't know that. The hearing was coming up. And we moved forward with what we thought was all, I repeat, all the worksheets. We didn't have all the worksheets. Yeah. They hid them from us. I, you know, back when I used to, I, I think I've done one OUI probably in the last 20 years. But back when I used to do many, many, many of them, I remember you go in, there's the machine, and there's a log. And it's, it's kind of like somebody's medical chart where everybody who does anything, it, they write down the date and the time and they sign it or, or initial it. This is what I did. And those logs we relied on to prove whether or not the simulator solutions that light passed through to see if it was going, the machine was going to work, and the annual calibration when the machine gets calibrated. So you're saying that these worksheets replace those logs and that they didn't even provide them to you? Yeah, that, that's, that, that's correct. That the annual certification, which is the calibration of the machine, is crucial to whether or not it was going to be producing scientific, reliable results. And that's what we were challenging. That, at the heart of the very litigation, the protocols were showing us whether they were calibrating the machines properly. And we didn't get the times that they failed. And in science, that's crucial. They, there's a whole body of science called root cause analysis. The failures, this is from the Daily Hampshire Gazette story today. The SJC case stemmed from a lawsuit in which the state police were required to turn over worksheets documenting the effectiveness, and we should note the ineffectiveness, of the breath test. According to The Globe, 11 worksheets worksheets indicating a failed calibration were turned over, but it turns out what they withheld were 432 432 worksheets that reported failures in the annual calibration. Is that right? That's correct. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was the lawyer standing in front of that judge, and he got very upset with the Office of Alcohol Testing ordering all the worksheets. Um, and just so we're clear, those 11 that you're talking about were buried. They never they never turned those over as part of the order. I know what, I know what they're saying, but that was not turned over. They were buried in, in, in another discovery request that I had made. And these 432 were identified by an electronic hit that my expert found because anytime you calibrate that machine, you plug it in and it goes to a database. And what, we, what it took was him to take every, there were thousands of these worksheets, and he compared and contrasted every single time we had an electronic hit, and we missed 432. 
and it, 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 it took a lot of work, but we had to put Humpty Dumpty back together again approximately four months after the judge rendered the decision. It was all done. The hearing was done, and then we, then we exposed it. We are speaking with Joe Bernard, the defense attorney for uh, Lindsay Hallinan. The Supreme Judicial Court said as a result of this case, 27,000 cases have been called into serious question, and people have a right in each one of those cases to ask for a new trial. When we come back, I want to ask Joe Bernard to complete the answer to the question which Dan raised, which is, what is the impact of people when they have to go through an OUI? And I want to talk about those people who may have been within this pool of 27,000 who might have had a second offense or a third offense where sanctions are more serious. And whether or not there's going to be civil litigation that comes out of that to get to Dan's question, if people were really hurt, will they be compensated? Great question, Bill. We'll be right back. Body's too young to look like his When mama went off and left him She wanted more from life than he could give I said somebody's got to take care of him So I quit school and that's what I did You got a fast car More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg Coming up right here on WHMP when it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Are you going to be growing tomatoes, growing salad greens, a big garden, or a few pots on the deck? Go to the Atlas Farm Store and get organic starter plants. Get tomatoes, get basil and other herbs. Get cucumbers, kale, eggplant, and melons. It's so easy to grow with organic plants and seeds from the Atlas Farm Store. Add color, too, with flowers and hanging baskets. Plant ahead, plant ahead, and grow all summer with the Atlas Farm Store in South Deerfield. No matter your age, love is always a hot topic. And so is love that goes south and everything in between. Join Young at Heart at the Academy of Music Theater in Northampton on Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. for The Love Show, featuring an unexpected combination of songs. From Lizzo to Marvin Gaye and Rihanna to the Buena Vista Social Club, Get ready to hear all about the dimensions and experiences of love and sex. If you want a lover, I'm your man. Young at Heart, backed by the fabulous Young at Heart Band, Sunday, May 7th at 3 p.m. at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Tickets are available through the Academy of Music box office. Call today or get them online at aomtheater.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with defense attorney Joe Bernard, who is just uh, a shining example of what happens when an attorney cares deeply enough to uh, stare injustice in the face and ask that it be remedied in court with respect to these OUI convictions. 
that have now been called into question by the Supreme Judicial Court because of the inadequacy of the scientific calibration of the machines that were used in these breath tests. And the misconduct of the state police. It's not just that that the tests were wrong. It's that the state police covered it up. Right. It often isn't the wrongdoing itself as much as it is an attempt to cover up the wrongdoing. So before we took a break, um, Joe, I just wanted to sort of follow up on Dan's question, which is what's the impact on somebody's life when they are convicted of an OUI? Well, it, it, it depends. But as I said, the bare minimum, of course, we're talking about close to $2,500 out-of-pocket fines and fees. But we, I've represented people and went to jail, literally went to jail. Um, and, and I remember poor Mr. Gonzalez in the Superior Court. And the only evidence against him on a vehicular homicide OUI was the breath test. And it was very low. And there was problems with the breath test. And Gonzalez went to jail over this. Now, unfortunately, poor Mr. Gonzalez has passed because of COVID. But there's a gentleman who sat in jail, rotted for two years, and didn't know the problems with this particular breath test machine. That's an extreme example, but that does happen. This particular aspect we need, I keep it emphasizing here, and I heard it again, is that it is an aspect of, of wrongdoing and, and, and there's a, there was a culture with the state police in the Office of Alcohol Testing of de- deception. And that was that there were, the governor sent in uh, and there was an investigation with two lawyers conducting all kinds of interviews. And the SJC, our Supreme Judicial Court, laid into that. And, and you, you can see it in the opinion. They talked about this investigation of EOPS, the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security. And in that report, it specifically says a culture of deception, a culture of deceit, cover-ups. And it's difficult, right, to change that culture. This is a scientific laboratory run by the state police. And we, we, we hear a lot in these days about uh, cognitive bias, right? And what we found, and one of the big takeaways here was you, as, as Freud once said, you know, the, the sick mind isn't going to create a, a remedy for the problem. You need some independence. And one of the, 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 um, the attributes of this particular uh, litigation brought in an independent ombudsman. Um, and right now, this ombudsman is independent of the state police, doesn't work for the state police, works uh, for the executive branch. Now, we might even want to go a step further with complete independence, but at least now, as we sit here, there has been an improvement with the culture of deceit and deception with the state police. And I just want to point out one other thing. I, we just don't have enough time. Joe, I'd like to talk to you for about four hours, and we're running out of time. But in fact, th- th- people might talk about the people who were convicted who should not have been convicted. But what about those people who actually were guilty of second, third, even fourth OUIs, who now their convictions are not going to stand because of this deceit, right? Correct. Illegal, and that's what I refer to as illegal sentencing. So if somebody was was um, a third or fourth offense, their license could be gone for the rest of their lives. It could be put in jail because of the elevated aspect of the subsequent offender. But what the lawyer needs to do is they need to reach back, examine if their particular conviction that underpins the the subsequent offense is part of my litigation, they have an opportunity to reach back and vacate that and not have it be used as a uh, an elevation of uh, license suspension or incarceration. Bill Newman, as an officer of the court, here's once again, we find that the, the wheels of justice have, they're grinding unfairly. 
and operating to the detriment of people who don't deserve to D- be convicted. So, Joe, quickly, mm-hmm. 15 seconds. Persons who were convicted between this was what years? 2011, 2019. Because now that there is a accurate breath test that's being used, yes? It's, Maybe. It's much, much better. And okay. I will say right now they're using it again, and, and there, are, there, there are aspects in place that make it much more reliable, yes. And those who were convicted during that time period, what should they do? File a motion to vacate, call a lawyer, but there are Committee for Public Counsel Services has a hotline. They, if they can't afford a lawyer, they can go to the Committee Public Counsel Service and they'll get a lawyer. Anyone who loves justice, the, the, the rule of law, should be applauding this decision, should be applauding the SJC, and Joe Bernard should be applauding you. Thank you for everything that you've done. Thank you for joining us today on Talk the Talk. Remember, we're all trying to walk the walk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It happens all over Massachusetts. Can you tie my shoes? In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you at breakfast this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank. With offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin Counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster. WHMP. WHMP Northampton.